I think you have to go through different layers. I think the initial layer is, did he run away or was he abducted? Yeah. That's the initial question because he's still classified as a missing person. Right. He's classified as, you know, victim of a abduction or victim of, uh, you know, any kind of, you know, physical or aggravated assault of some kind. He's still classified as a missing person. Mm-hmm. So I think if you look at the evidence, the objective evidence of where he was last seen, where the stuff was found, the geography of the location, the witnesses that saw different things, it's apparent that more than one person was involved. It, it, it's apparent that he was abducted. Yeah. It, doesn't, it, it doesn't seem reasonable that he would run away. It's apparent that he was abducted, and it's apparent that, or went somewhere against his will, it's apparent that he was abducted by, I believe, more than one person. So if you sort of go into that realm of, more than one person having to be involved, then you have to start to think, well, wh- how does that work? What does that work? Why are two people abducting a 12-year-old kid? W- what do you want with a 12-year-old kid? Never a ransom note. There was never any money exchanged. So, you know, the only reasonable things you can think of are, you know, organ, you know, or black market organ donation or some kind of, um, you know, sex and or you know, slave abuse situation. We know that that happens around the world, and we know that that oftentimes what happens with kids. We usually hear about it in other countries, though, and not our own. Um, or it was an organ, you know, uh, you know, a, a serial killer and his pedophile buddy who took him and decided they were going to do what they were going to do and then kill him and bury him somewhere. That's David Bielinson talking, the director of Who Took Johnny?, the documentary on Johnny Gosh's case, which is now available on Netflix. I mentioned in my first episode that I was hoping to have an interview with David for you soon, and I'm happy to tell you we were able to finally speak earlier this week. My conversation with David was somewhat brief, only about half an hour, but there was something that stood out to me. He is remarkably good at remaining objective, and that's something I admire in a filmmaker. He may have his own ideas on what exactly happened to Johnny, but he makes sure to look at it from the standpoint of what is the most probable? What's the most credible theory based on the information given? That's what our first segment today is about. The timeline of events leading up to the moment Johnny vanished off that quiet, suburban street corner and the most credible theories to come out of it. We'll also talk about how the film Who Took Johnny came to be. Welcome to the second episode of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. When I got David on the phone, I started off the interview with the most obvious question. Why did he decide to make a film about the Johnny Gosh case? I was surprised to learn that the plans first came about in 2002. My partners and I um, at Rumor had finished a film that we were doing for HBO and had a screening of the film at their offices. Um, it was a film we had previously done called uh, Horns and Halos. Publisher and a book of a discredited sort of George W. Bush you know, pop culture biography that came out during the 2000 campaign and <clears throat> sort of the story about these two guys. And someone who came from screening said, oh, well, if you think that's a good story, referring to our film, um, I've got a really crazy story for you. And sort of went into um, enlightening us into the whole Johnny Gosh sort of story of, you know, what happened to the first missing kid on a milk carton. All these different um, sort of pathways that the story's taken over the years. Um, through that, we some research, 
you know, learned about Noreen and sort of went into the whole sort of Pandora's box, I guess you would say, of things associated with this case. Um, and we had spent, oh, this was back in 2002, so I guess we spent um, uh, almost 10 years working on the project. And so we had a meeting one day with MSNBC about some stuff, and we were talking about, you know, well-known crime cases. We said, you know, the 30th anniversary of his disappearance is coming up. Um, you know, the 30th anniversary of sort of the first kid who was put on a milk carton, and and also, you know, his story changed so much about um, both law enforcement and yeah. know, Americana. You know, kids aren't really don't do newspaper uh, routes anymore. Um, you know, it was at a time before we sort of had this infrastructure in place to deal with missing and exploited kids. So um, it had a lot going for it as a story, both just as an interesting story, um, and then also its place in history. So through MSNBC, they, they gave us some money to create a short special for NBC that aired um, back during his anniversary in 2012. And then we sort of took that and made a director's cut, which is, you know, a 90-minute film, which became Who Took Johnny? Imagine a decade of research on this particular case. I've been researching Johnny's case for a little over a year, and I first started to feel overwhelmed my first four weeks in. But I first learned of this documentary, I would say, just at the right time. I originally heard about Johnny Gosh when I saw his name online. Being somewhat intrigued by the brief mention, I did my own Google search. Well, there goes the neighborhood, because after that, I just couldn't stop reading up on him. Then, about a month or so in, I found out there was this documentary available. So I watched it, and yes, it did reaffirm a lot of the details I learned through my own research. What I love about the film is that it lays everything out in a timeline. A timeline that starts on September 5th, 1982, and goes all the way until present day. I think the moment that early on in the film that I equal parts love and want to have a nervous breakdown over is how we first see that morning play out. It shows a bird's eye view digital map of Johnny's neighborhood. Johnny and everyone else who was outside that morning is depicted by a white dot. With precision down to the minute, we see said white dot cut through the backyard and go up onto the next street, which I just looked up is Ashworth Road. We see another white dot depicting another paper boy named Mike on the corner on the next block over collecting his papers for his route. As we see Johnny make it from the grass onto the sidewalk, a shady looking car rolls up, stops, and backs up to meet Johnny right as he approaches the sidewalk. Johnny talks to him for a minute and then he keeps walking up Ashworth to go collect his papers. Around this moment, we see another white dot, John Rossi, the neighbor who lived at the corner. He steps out into his yard where the boys are collecting their papers, and it's at this moment the car reappears again and asks for directions. After the car takes off again, Johnny's white dot turns the corner and starts to make its way down 42nd Street. John Rossi has said at that point a man walked out from between two neighboring houses and started to follow Johnny. So now we see a bird's eye view of the unknown man's white dot following Johnny's white dot. So Johnny turns a corner again onto Marcourt Lane, just after passing by two other white dots on the other side of the street, depicting two more paper boys. After he turns that corner, the car has reappeared again. Now, we don't know for certain what happened in those few seconds, but we are told that a neighbor boy in the house across the street woke up to the sound of a car door slamming and seeing the car take off and blow through the stop sign at 42nd and Marcourt. That's the thing that kills me about this, the precision. The precision of how we know where Johnny walked, how long it took him, 
where that car was at all times, the neighbors who saw Johnny the seconds leading up to when he disappeared forever, and the neighbor boy who saw that car blow that stop sign. We're talking accuracy down to the minute. As soon as that car disappears from sight, it's from that point on that there's been no confirmed reports for 35 and a half years. As I mentioned in the first episode, John and Noreen, Johnny's parents, first realized something was wrong when they started getting calls from neighbors complaining that they weren't getting their papers. John Sr. first thought maybe Johnny innocently was just running late, so he decided to go out and help him. Well, soon after that, he comes back to the house and tells Noreen to go call the police. Because at this point, now that the sun is out, John Sr. has turned onto Marcourt Lane and saw Johnny's red wagon sitting there on the sidewalk full of untouched newspapers, plain as day. So let's look at what we have already. We've got this one guy who no one has ever seen before, driving around the neighborhood, giving everyone the creeps, stops and talks to Johnny for a minute. And now who is this other guy that has only ever been described as he walked out from between two houses? You heard David say at their opening that this is classified as a missing persons case. This is not classified as a child abduction case. But the fact that two unknown people were seen in the neighborhood that morning, both looking suspicious, one who spoke to Johnny and the other reportedly following him, suggests to me, and I think a lot of people, that not only is this a child abduction case, but it was organized. These men had a plan in place, and they had a target. It was, it was at a time when dealing with missing kids didn't have the same sort of urgency as, as it does now, or, or, the, or the protocols in place set up that urgency. Uh, even like, you know, the police response, you know, now it's, it's pretty quick. You get that, even if it's the person's unsure of what happened, you get a pretty quick police response, you get Amber, let's get all that. Back then, it was, especially in sort of rural Des Moines, which was more rural then than it is now, and it's still pretty rural parts of it. Um, you know, kids are on farms, they're running around, there's no cell phones or waking in touch, so it wouldn't be uncommon for a kid to just be gone for a few hours um, or be yeah. gone for a day and eventually end up home. Um, so I think, you know, law enforcement, the ones that would talk, always expressed regret that they couldn't figure it out. Um, certainly there's regret over the fact that, you know, another kid went missing two years later, another paper boy went missing two years later, and then even right. two years after that, there was another one. That other paper boy that David just mentioned, who went missing two years later, was Eugene Martin, and he disappeared on August 12, 1984, also never to be seen again. Eugene's case is just about identical to Johnny's. Eugene was 13 and was from rural Des Moines, and he was just starting his paper route at about 5.30 in the morning. And then he suddenly vanished off the corner of Southwest 14th and Highview Drive, leaving his bag of papers on the sidewalk. On top of that, the last people to see Eugene that morning remember seeing him talking to a man. And it didn't stop there. Almost another two years after that, another boy from Des Moines went missing. On March 29, 1986, Mark Allen, also 13, had just planned to walk down the street to a friend's house. He never made it to that friend's house, and no one has ever seen him again. So, you've got these three boys, all around the same age, all from Des Moines, Iowa, and they all disappeared under the same circumstances, within a total range of less than four years. I think common sense will tell you that that's really unlikely that these are coincidences. And in fact, when Johnny's mother Noreen appeared on KCWI in April of 2015 to talk about the premiere of Who Took Johnny, she talked in detail about one major requirement that she had before she ever agreed to make this film with Rumor Incorporated. This tragedy spanned other families 
and I said we believe that they're all connected due to the evidence we have and all three families deserve resolution mm -hmm. and closure so I insisted on that and then the other thing was I didn't want it to be sensationalized and make this into something that it's not mm -hmm. It is a true story about heartbreak for three families due to the fact that somebody came into our city and took these children off the street. And the company that came to me, they talked to me for over a year before I agreed to do it. Yeah. And the, pr the director said to me, he says, I never worked so hard in my life <laughs> getting somebody to what agree the, to a what film. What was the biggest uh, point that, that you were getting hung up on with these other companies that were coming in? What was the one piece of the puzzle you said, this had to happen or you're not making the movie? Well, that they would include the other two boys as well. So we have the timeline, the things that we know happened, and we can see how Johnny's case parallels with Eugene Martin's and Mark Allen's. In our next segment, we're going to build on something you heard David mention a few minutes ago, how law enforcement protocol has changed over the years when pursuing a missing child's case. We're also going to talk about the Doe Network, the organization that works to match missing persons cold cases with John and Jane Doe's, We'll hear from Mary Bell, the Match Panel Coordinator. That's up next. It's time to talk about the police response. I mentioned in the first episode that from the time Noreen called the police on the morning of September 5, 1982, it took police 45 minutes to arrive at the Gosh's house, even though the headquarters was 10 blocks away. It seems unthinkable, but the reason it seems unthinkable is because you're hearing that in the year 2018. So being aware of that caveat, let's look at it again. In our first segment, you heard David Bielinson, the director of Who Took Johnny, say that in the early 80s in rural Iowa, it was not unusual for kids to run around and take off all day and then show up back home at night. That's a perfectly normal, innocent thing at that time. No normal parents would have a problem with this because that's what kids are supposed to do. Run around, explore the cornfields, have fun, get your hands dirty. That's what children have done for generations. And think about it this way. If you were a parent at that time and you did assume that there was an imminent danger out there looking to snatch your kids at any time and that caused you to never let your kids venture out alone, you would actually be in the minority. You would be billed as one of those paranoid, overprotective parents. So that's the mindset I'd like you to get into. That the kids are fine, they're just out playing, they're walking to a friend's house. They know they need to be home by dark. So it's because of that that police protocol was very different back then if a worried parent called the police not knowing where their kid was. At that time, police had a rule in place that they could not begin to investigate a missing child case until the child had been gone for at least 48 hours. The reasoning being the kid probably just lost track of time and will end up back at home that night, or they were a runaway. Again, it sounds unthinkable in 2018, but keep this in mind also, in 2018, we have these cases to use as an example. Johnny Gosh, Adam Walsh, Jacob Wetterling, these are all common names in our lexicon. What cases were there to cite back then in 1982? Sure, there was Adam Walsh just one year earlier, who was taken from a mall parking lot on July 27, 1981, and then was found murdered. 
But that was way down in Hollywood, Florida, and it was one instance. In West Des Moines, Iowa, one year later, that's not enough for cops to jump to that kind of possibility. So in a lot of ways, at least in the rural Midwest, Johnny Gosh was really patient zero for how missing, presumed abducted children cases are handled. Maybe he, Eugene Martin, and Mark Allen all share the same unfortunate lot in life, in that they've had to become the examples that we learn from today. But even though change does come slow, it does ultimately come nevertheless. Here's Della Williams from the Missing Persons Support Center. The only regulation as far as the FBI and missing children is the FBI has a regulation that states once they, once, you know, like dispatch gets a call, if they send the officers out, determined, yes, this is a missing child case, they have a two-hour window to make sure that child is put into NCIC. Once a child is put into NCIC, it automatically populates into uh, NECMEC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. An Amber Alert, the way that our state system is set up, if you enter a missing child and it is an abduction and you have and you meet all the criteria for Amber Alert, all you do is click a box and it not only goes to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, but it also sets off um, everything in motion to do an Amber Alert. But as far as like waiting 24 hours or waiting 48 hours, all those rules are non-existent anymore. Basically, if you present yourself to the police department or to the police officer and you say, my child's missing, or children get a lot more action than adults. And the only reason that is is because as an adult, you have the right to go missing. However, I know like here in Missouri and stuff, We've really been working on if someone presents themselves, whether it's an adult or child, the agency needs to enter them as missing. You heard Della mention a couple times in that clip the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. I want to point out that that organization first came into existence really because of Noreen Gosh, Johnny's mother, and John Walsh, the father of Adam Walsh who we all know from America's Most Wanted and The Hunt with John Walsh. I'll talk more at length about the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in a later episode. So now that we've sort of laid out the differences in police protocol in the early 80s versus police protocol today, I'd like to talk about another one of the resources that exists today, the Doe Network. The Doe Network was first formed in 1999, and they're a nonprofit organization whose mission is to connect missing persons cold cases to John and Jane Doe cases, by which I mean the unidentified deceased. Anyone can go on and submit details of a missing person's cold case and an unidentified person who they think may be a match, and that submission then goes on to the match panel. It's the match panel's job to decide if the submission is credible enough to send on to law enforcement. Earlier this week, I got to speak with Mary Bell, the match panel coordinator for the Doe Network. I um, had been a canine dog handler for a search team here in Houston called Texas EquiSearch. I had a cadaver dog. Essentially, I just got uh, too old to do that work anymore. You know, I'm a little long in the tooth to be jumping over ditches and climbing up ravines and crashing through bushes. The Doe Network was a way to continue the search for missing people, albeit from a desk, which is, uh, that was more my speed at that time. So who makes up the match panel? Well, we have 12 members. Some of them are forensic professionals, such as we have a uh, forensic dentist. He's invaluable because uh, he can actually uh, do rule outs. In other words, he can enter that onto uh, 
NamUs they have a list of exclusions. And we have an MD who's a pathologist, so she's very helpful um, as far as autopsy findings and things of that nature. And we have a person who has a degree in forensic science. Over the years, the Doe Network has helped to solve a total of 75 cases. So I mentioned to Mary, it's surprising to me that more people, regular people like you and me, aren't more aware that the Doe Network is even out there as a resource. We get about 30 submissions a month. And I think we're not well-known. We're nonprofit. We do have a very low-key presence. Most of law enforcement, though, has heard of us as, as well as the medical examiner. But I think the general public as a whole probably doesn't know what who Doe Network is. Although I have seen a couple of bucket lists where people want to make a match. Yeah. And speaking of submissions to make a potential match, about a year ago, I myself sent in what I thought at the time was a 100% match. It was the missing person, Johnny Gosh, and the John Doe with the Doe Network ID number 174UMCO. The match panel decided it was not likely a match, and I actually found out later that I was not the first person to submit these two together. In hindsight, I can see why they came to that conclusion, and I myself don't believe it's a match anymore either. The John Doe was discovered on July 11, 1997, in the sleeper cab of an abandoned semi-truck in Fort Collins, Colorado. He was presumed to be between the ages of 18 and 30. So, on the one hand, it does stand to reason if you think that Johnny lived well beyond the age of 12. But what had me convinced was the forensic sketch. That sketch, seriously... Go to Google right now and type in Doe Network 174UMMASINMARYCO and look at the black and white sketch. There just seem to be so many similarities between it and Johnny Gosh's school picture. The teeth, the eyes, the nose, the chin. So I asked Mary, what would have been some of the factors that made the match panel decide this couldn't be a match? I was expecting her to just explain to me some of the things the panel looks at. But to my surprise, she actually looked my submission up for me right there on the spot. Oh, let me see if I can find that particular one. Well, one of the rule-out reasons would have been distance. Well, not rule-out, but reasons to vote no. Another would have been timing, circumstances. I see how it's kind of, it's a reach. In hindsight, I don't really think that that's him either. But yeah, like I, I remember thinking at the time, like, I wonder what the criteria is for um, for deciding. Also, our forensic dentist, I'm looking here, his, his dental was inconsistent. So that would have carried a huge amount of weight and also marks and scars. And I agree. Certain details may seem like small, insignificant things at first, but actually a tattoo teeth not matching, they're not small details at all. They're pretty unimpeachable. So the mystery remains. Our goal is to only send the best possible matches to law enforcement. In other words, there may be, sometimes we get matches for somebody who went missing in California and they're trying to match that individual to a, a skull in Vermont. Well, could this woman who went missing in California be yeah, that's a possibility, but there's endless possibilities. And if we sent every marginal match like that to law enforcement, they very soon would quit paying any attention to any of our matches. We want to spend not send not possibilities, but probabilities. You look at things that are going to prove up without DNA or dentals or anything at your disposal. You want to send those things to law enforcement, things that will catch their attention. 
things that will make them want to investigate it. We're going to talk more about the Doe Network, and by the time of our next episode, I'm planning to create a video that I will direct you to on YouTube that will basically be a walkthrough of the Doe Network's website and how you can submit a potential match yourself. Also in our next episode, we'll talk about the next events in the timeline of Johnny's case and the role that the media has played in keeping it going. We'll also talk a bit more about Noreen Gosh and how it was her tenacity that has kept Johnny's case alive for all these years. We'll be hearing a lot more from David Bielinson as well, gathering more of his personal insight. I will be back in two weeks for episode three. I apologize for not being able to bring it to you next week, but two weeks I will be back here. And until then, you can tweet me. My Twitter handle is Sarah E. Dimeo. That's S-A-R-A-H-E-D-I-M-E-O. You can also email me at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. This has been episode two of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimeo. See you next time. <laughs>